trauma literally changes the way your brain interacts. There's li quite literal evidence that shows that. So this is why I find it interesting, but I think most of it could lie at the hands of colonization and slavery and being moved into societies where we fought for equal rights, fought for consumer rights, and so much more. And still by now, there's still a lot of racism that's been deeply entrenched. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of In Pursuit Passion, produced by Empire Media and hosted by myself, Hamish Hallett, where I speak to amazing individuals pursuing their passions to the fullest. In this episode, I was joined by Sean Flores in an episode all about his OCD advocacy. We also spoke about unleashing the inner child, the power of conversations and how speaking our story helps us. So sit back, relax, and let's pursue this passion. Welcome to In Pursuit of Passion, Sean Flores. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing well, man. Excited to be here. I love um, the, the title of your podcast. I think In Pursuit of Passion is a very fitting podcast name. So I'm ready to talk about the pursuits that I'm on and why I'm passionate in my pursuits, man. No, I can't wait, man. I can't wait to, you know, have this conversation with you because I feel like, you know, you're on your own pursuit of, you know, being an OCD advocate, which we'll mm -hmm. definitely dive into. But I think we'll also dive into like how you got there beforehand and also, you know, how you're pursuing, you know, your your advocacy, you know, right now, really. But let's, you know, let's start. I all, I've oftentimes, you know, love to start with a quote, oftentimes with, you know, these episodes. And one quote that stood out for me about you was this idea of, you know, you were raised on the bedrock of ideas that I must succeed regardless of the cost. Now, looking back, what were those ideas and what was the cost of fulfilling those ideas? That's a fantastic question. You know what it is? Whenever I come onto a podcast and someone really takes the time to do research, it's always heartwarming. So you're definitely a good interviewer. So I just want to mention oh, that first you. of all. But yeah, a lot of the bedrock of ideas that I was raised upon were... Go and get a, you know, study, get your nine to five, get married, be religious and your life will be complete. Your life will be set. It didn't allow for any more exploration into what else out there in life that I really wanted to do, my other pursuits. Now, for example, a lot of those other ideas were societal um, ideas of, you know, for example, um, not being gay. I'm, I'm not gay anyway, but that plays a part in my OCD. But also not being a certain kind of man, not engaging with um, things that are quote unquote immoral or, you know, not aligned with God. There was all these different ideas that I had growing up. But as I got older, I started to realize that for me to pursue a lot of the things that I want to do, there has to come a cost, right? And I remember there was a film, I just can't remember the name of it, um, but there was a quote that said, the bill always comes due. So it's the idea of whatever I've had to chase, it's come at a very deep sacrifice, but it's come at a cost. But I think the cost of what it would have been to the family that raised me and my mum that raised me was very different to what the cost that I have now essentially paid into is the best way for me to explain it. Mm. What do you mean by that? So, whole, yeah. yeah. I, so, for example, I think once so my dad died on Christmas Day when I was six years old, and my mum obviously raised me as a single parent. We grew up in quite a low socioeconomic area, but my mum worked hard to try and hide the hide it. She sacrificed a lot, but for me, what happened was 
I spent a long time trying to overachieve. And I think in many ways, overachieving is a sign of trauma, right? Because you're looking for some sort of adoration. You're looking for some sort of affirmation that I wasn't typically getting at home. And it's, it's not my mom's fault. My mom grew up in a very different culture than the Western culture. So for example, my mom and I had a conversation the other day when I took her out for her birthday. She said to me that, she didn't even know gay people existed until she came to the UK. That was the kind of ideas that she had, right? Because where she grew up in Trinidad, it's a very different world. Um, I think homosexuality is still actually illegal, if I remember correctly. But there was all these different ideas. And so for me, it was, as I said, the overachieving. I constantly felt like I wanted an achievement after an achievement. So after one TEDx talk, it didn't feel like enough. After writing articles, it didn't feel like enough. After getting four degrees, it didn't feel like enough. I always had this gaping hole within me that wanted to be recognized and wanted to be adored, wanted to be affirmed for everything that I was doing. But as I said, I realized a lot of that came from not having it from my mom. My mom loved me very differently. She loved me through acts of service, but not through words of affirmation. So I've had to go on this journey now where whilst I've paid the cost, I've also paid another cost another way. And the bill comes due typically with therapy is the best way for me to describe it quite literally, emotionally and mentally. But I'm in a state now where I'm trying to nurture my inner child. My inner child needs a lot of work. Do you feel like you've made progress in that sense in terms of like fulfilling that inner child? Because as you said about the, the overachieving, I totally relate to that because I have that overachieving mindset. Like, it might have been because of trauma as well, because, you know, I was, I was like bullied when I was younger. I'd felt different because of my learning difficulty and so many different things. Like I didn't feel like, because my parents were like having their own business. They were so preoccupied with that. And I didn't feel like I had that sort of emotional sort of attachment. I don't know how to best explain it. So I totally relate in terms of the overachieving. But as you said, which was so elegantly put, you're saying that you want to try and, you know, address that in a child. Like how much progress have you made in terms of addressing that if that makes sense so funnily enough um i'm on an app called locals.org i'm not sure if you've heard of it it's where a lot of, of yeah, yeah, yeah a lot of people meet up if they have very similar interests and one of the activities is getting is i'm um, talking about the inner child so doing like painting going to a zoo a lot of the things that when you're young you enjoy but as you get older quite often we don't realize that our dreams have been killed as we get older because reality smacks us quite hard. But children have this effervescent nature where they hold on to their dreams and they believe that they can do anything. And what's to say adults can't do that? So one part of it has been trying to do the things that the young me wanted to do. Another big part of it has been facing all my fears. So I'm terrified of heights, but I went and did zip lining. I also went on the giant swing. I also did skydiving. I've done things that have really confronted my fears. But people often say to me, Sean, are you supposed to have some fears? And I said, maybe. But I said, these fears don't do anything good for me. You know, I'm trying to be a bit, not fully and entirely, but in some essence, I'm quite inspired by David Goggin. You know, the idea of callous in your mind, how he constantly puts his mind through limbic friction. And for people who don't know what limbic friction is, it's he's constantly stressing his brain out. He's putting himself in uncomfortable situations because that's where he grows the most. But another thing to address the inner child has been um, therapy. I've got a therapist who is very motherly to me in the sense of, she's been the mother that I probably needed when I was younger. So it allows me a free space to be able to speak about how I feel, to talk about the things that I need to talk about. But another thing that's allowed me to reach my inner child has been doing the things that make me uncomfortable. 
And funnily enough, hugging people, my good for my friends make me feel uncomfortable. Affirming my friends make me feel uncomfortable because it's so different to what I grew up with. But also, as I said to you, I'm, I'm on a trial at the moment with the NHS. We're trialing the power of psilocybin when it comes to OCD. So another part of me addressing that inner child has been not to always be overstimulated, to be happy with the bare minimum. So when I was, um, I can't, as I said, I can't tell you too much, but on one of the trips for about three hours, I just was understimulated and it was one of the best feelings I've ever had in the world. It made me realize that we live in a very overstimulated world. And when you're young, you really appreciate things and you can, you're sometimes depending on the kid, you can focus on one thing at a time. But I've noticed as I've got older, I'm searching for something to constantly keep me ticking over. Could be ADHD, I don't know. But these are the things that I'm doing to address my inner child. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your learning difficulty. I've heard you speak a lot about it, but if you could tell me a little bit about it, I'd love to hear. Yeah, no, of course. No, I mean, so I have something called a auditory processing disorder or APD for short. So it's basically where I process auditory information, so verbal information, a bit slowly or a bit differently to other people. That is basically my condition. And basically, when I was like quite young, it was for me quite difficult to sort of like understand people or I struggled in terms of like processing sort of like what I wanted to say to other people. So I at some stage couldn't develop my speech very well when I was very young, basically. Um, those people who I apparently I couldn't even talk wow. until I was age six or something. It was it was crazy um, because I know relating to your story, I know you had a stammer, so I totally understand your kind of experience as well. So that, in, in a nutshell, is kind of like my own learning difficulty. Um, and I'll, of course, like as you've been saying, like trying to un- unlock that sort of um, in a child. I've also had that sort of work as well of trying to understand my auditory process and sort of what works for me what doesn't and it's been a very liberating journey as well so yeah in a nutshell that's kind of like my learning difficulty really oh absolutely i think you've touched on something very key that it's a, it's a liberating journey you know the places yeah. that you grow the most are the places that are going to give you the most discomfort and the one thing you learn with how living with OCD is you've got to learn to tolerate anxiety. We call it willful tolerance, yeah. where you sit with the discomfort with whatever the thought gives you or whatever anxiety brings. But yeah, I used to have a really bad stutter when I was younger um, and they suspected, so I went to the speech and language therapist and they suspected it was because of my dad's death. Um, they predicted very strongly, but also I, I actually still stutter every now and then. And when I tell people I stutter, they just don't believe me at all because in their head, I'm so articulate or I've got great elocution and diction, but that came from somewhere. I had to work harder than most people. My mum made me read a lot. It was very entrenched in the Caribbean culture that education was the passport to the future. So I think probably like yourself, you've had to work harder than most people, but people only see what shows on the surface and not what happens in the depths of our everyday existence. Oh, so true. So, so true. Because I, I often, I agree with that. Sometimes when I describe like, my challenges people are like well you went through that I, I never noticed right and as you said like you are a very articulated person and oftentimes i feel like you might get this a lot where people are like oh i never suspected you had a stammer because often as you said it's always on the surface it's never that deep rootedness about you know having a stammer or having a learning difficulty or having ocd they don't they never notice that at all it's all it's all surface level and I think as a society and as people, I think we've got to get beyond that. Um, so I just wonder, like, actually, from that, like, how do people 
get beyond it. Rather than going looking at someone like from surface level, how do we go beyond it and to that deep rootedness that you've been talking about? I think the one thing that's very important about what you've asked is, and I think I want to make this clear that utopia doesn't exist. I think in in a lot of for a lot of us, we we would like to believe in a better world, and I think a better world can come, but there's limits to our humanity because of the way we've evolved psychologically, biologically, and so on. So I think for us to get to the deeper parts of who human beings really are, we have to have conversations like what we're having now. We have a dialogue. So you're using this chance to have me on your platform where you're dissecting and going through parts of my life. This is, this is great. And this shows us a part of humanity that we need to have more. And I think the power is through conversation, right? But I'm sure you and I have spoken about this often before, Hamish, that... We live in a time where echo chambers are more prevalent than they've ever been. People shout each other down. People hear people's political opinions and beliefs and just go, I'm not hearing anymore. And that doesn't give us a chance to dissect because I often say to people that left wing and right wing are both sides of the same birds, but it's just we're all traveling on different wings. That's quite literally the difference, right? And that's something I quite have realized that I might not get along with the most conservative people, but I also don't get along with the most liberal people. But I try to have a part where I dissect. Why do you think like that? Where was it? Was it a point in life where you found your views changed? Because I remember Churchill is a very controversial figure, but he said, if you're not liberal before 25, you have no heart. And if you're not conservative after 25, you have no, you have no brain, essentially, is what he said. And I kind of understand where he comes from. I think sometimes when we're young and dumb, we have these ideas and these fantastical dreams about us changing the world. And I think we can. I think we get really, really sobered with the reality of what life is and our views can change. So I often say to people that for us to keep having these conversations is the best way for us to move past shallowness and to get ready to move in those deep, sometimes very murky waters. But again, you've got to have the emotional, the mental endurance and fortitude to be able to do that. So I also understand it's not for everyone, which I'm sure you probably have realized as well. Yeah, massively. Oh, I've, I've realized that a mass. I like when trying to speak to people who aren't in the space that I'm in, like in terms of like the echo chamber, well, not even the echo chambers, but just like the spaces that you speak of, even like normal people, any sort of a slightly right wing opinion or even slightly left wing opinion gets shut down completely. Absolutely. Gets shut down. And that's not right? good for There's society. No, no, it's not at all. And I feel like, as you've been saying, the power of the conversation is so, so important to not only unlock that deep rootedness of certain things, like certain topics that often don't want to get spoken about, it sort of allows people to understand and have that sort of insight of ourselves as well, which I think is lacking massively in that sense. And, and speaking of which, you know, I would, I'd love to just sort of speak about your, your OCD a bit more. Like, I know you said that, you know, your OC diagnosis was like the worst thing to happen to me but I will also be the worst thing to happen to OCD. What do you kind of like mean by that? Because it's a really interesting quote. So the best way for me to describe OCD, it's obviously it's repetitive, unwanted, obsessional, intrusive thoughts. So my OCD presented itself through sexual orientation OCD, which is obsessive thoughts about my sexuality. I couldn't stop questioning, was I gay? And to the average person, that doesn't matter. But 
within our brain with OCD, scans have shown that areas of the brain are very hyperactive. So it actually fires very differently. So that, that's how it started. Secondly, I had a very intrusive thought around sexual assault, which caused me to panic. I said, I'm going to get therapy. And I'm giving you a really shortened version because I want to answer your question. So I started psychodynamic therapy. And for OCD, you're not supposed to have psychodynamic therapy. You're supposed to have CBT, ERP, which is cognitive behavior exposure response prevention, where you get exposed to your worst fear and you learn to not respond to the behaviors that keep alleviating your anxiety. So what happened for me was I was at the depths of a depression, um, a deep depression. Um, waking up for me felt like a burden. Every time I woke up, I was honestly Hamish. I was just like, why do I have to wake up to suffer another day? I could barely do the basics. I could barely eat one meal a day. I, just being alive, I wanted time to swallow me up. I would just lie on my sofa or lay in my bed for hours and just go, I'm tired of this. I don't want this anymore. I want to go back to sleep and maybe I'll wake up and I'll no longer be here. I contemplated suicide. I called Samaritans three days in a row because I was so terrified of what was going on in my own head. And through therapy, my therapist saved my life in countless ways. I can never, I, I always say. But I remember one day during ther um, after therapy, I woke up in the morning and quite literally I said to, I said, fuck this. How much longer am I going to choose to be depressed? I foresaw depression as a choice, as a choice in terms of my thinking patterns allowed me to be depressed. Obviously, there's a chemical imbalance, but there's a lot more evidence that proves that depression is not a chemical imbalance. A chemical imbalance, therefore, doesn't cause depression, but sometimes thinking can cause depression because you ruminate. Depression is rumination of the past. Anxiety is rumination about the future, right? Which prevents us both from living in the present. So what happened was I just woke up and I said, I'm going to change the world. I got onto my laptop and I started writing my story. And since then, I haven't turned back. That's been quite literally my pursuit through the passion of depression is what happened for me. And I realized that the community of which have given so much to me, the black community, I want to give back. I've had so many black people reach out to me about OCD in silence because they're so ashamed of it. Because when I wrote my, about my story, Hamish, I had people reach out that I never knew had OCD. And I was like, people really do suffer in silence and they tell no one. So I agree. that's yeah. why I say OCD was the worst thing to ever happen to me, but I will be the worst thing to happen to OCD. I'm not exactly looking for a cure, but I'm looking to alleviate the years, the mental pain and toll to, given um, by OCD to relieve it from people's lives and to keep speaking up, to give a voice to the voiceless and hope to the hopeless. And my story is somebody else's healing. That's quite literally what I, something I've really realized. So I'm, in, I'm off service to the community. And I think from being off service, it's allowed me to come out of that depressive episode that I was in. Mm, that's beautiful. Wow. I mean, that's the thing, man. Because I, I, when speaking to you and stuff like that, I would never... It's a bad thing for me to say, because I, I agree with you in the sense of saying so many people suffer in silence, but when, like talking to you, I'll never imagine you going through such a situation. Right? Yeah. Like from like friend to friend, like I would never imagine that. When I was reading your story, I was like, fucking hell. Sean went through that? Like... Yeah. And this you was, I mean? and, like, and do you know what it is? This was at a time where, so OCD was the first thing that, that was the first thing that began. My stepdad ended up in a home with vascular dementia. Then I tore my ACL, MCL, fractured my meniscus, um, tore my meniscus and fractured my leg in football. Ended up in hospital with pneumonia for three days. Then um, my cousin was murdered. Then my auntie died. Then my other auntie has cancer. Then my, I found out my half brother died 
when I was on the phone to my therapist talking about I want to have a better relationship with him. I can't choose what happened to me, but I can choose how I move forward, right? And that's quite often what I say. But you're right that a lot of people, when they've heard my story, they go, Sean, I didn't know you went through that. But I think some people, they have this assumption that when you're a guy, you're going to be strong no matter what. We, Hamish, you and I probably know men that have taken their own lives as a result of the pain that they've gone through. A lot of men have reached out to me because they're also suicidal. But also another thing is, I think quite often we have this opinion about people that it, I think Dave best said it in a song. It usually takes for someone falling to their death for you to appreciate the gravity of the situation. So most people don't realize that when people are alive, people go through stuff. When they're dead, their, their pain may or may not stop whatever you believe in after this earth. But you've got to check in on people while they're alive because you just don't know what people are going through. Not 100%. You, you just don't. You just don't. Like I, I was speaking to someone recently and um, it was their friend and they apparently went through like, a, like an addiction with cannabis and other drugs and other stuff like that. And... I was talking to the guy as well. And I was just like, in my head thinking, like, I never would imagine that person going through that. It was only after him speaking to my friend was I was then I realized it, you know, it's, it's absolutely mental. And I think there's also one thing when, when I was preparing for this, I also wanted to speak about like, cause I know you spoke, just spoke about how, um, by the black community as often there's like a lot of, um, I don't know how to best describe it, but in terms of like the mental health issues, it's quite prominent within that community. I kind of, as someone who is white, who doesn't have that lived experience, I want to like understand a bit more, like why is that? Why is it that black men, for example, suffer a lot with mental health issues compared to like anyone else, if that makes sense. So what's, what's, what's really interesting is black boys up until the age of 11 have the exact same mental health um, that's on par with their white counterparts. But there's something that happens after 11 years old that really shifts with black boys. And whether it's they are seen as adults within the education system and society treats them differently. And there's research that shows that young black boys are treated as adults from as young as up to 14, 13. Um, and whether it's society's gross inequalities and racial injustices start to rear their ugly head. So I think there's a whole load of reasons, but there's something that happens from 11 that really changes the way black boys interact with the world. And I think in a world where you feel like you're probably not loved and adored and you go to the shops and you're always followed, like I get followed all the time in um, shops. I still get followed even at my big age, Hamish. I'm 28 and I often say to my white friends, just come and experience a day with me and you'll understand why live being black in the UK can almost be one of the worst things for your mental health. And I remember a doctor said this. So whether it's microaggressions, racial injustices, direct racism and discrimination, there's something that happens. But also we know that black men are four times more likely to be um, sectioned on the Mental Health Act. We also know that black men are six times more likely to be diagnosed with a psychotic disorder. Now, whether that's due to the prevalence of alcohol or drugs, there's this idea that black boys use drugs more than white people, but and that's actually not true. It's actually been proven, statistically speaking, that white people on average use more drugs at festivals and so on, but things like Notting Hill Carnival get more, um, you know, uh, bad media attention. But I think it's, it's discrimination is another big thing um, within medical institutions. We know that there's a lot of distrust within our community in regards to the institutions, whether it's the police, the mental health services, and people ask, where does this come from? So you've got the Stephen Lawrence case where you saw the police um, 
poorly handled Stephen Lawrence's murder at the hands of the um, the racists. And also when you look at, for example, black women, um, when they're pregnant or when they've given birth, people don't take their pain very seriously. They're seen as superwomen. And I think a lot of these ideas have been perpetuated and they've continued through time. Whether or not people class this as woke or not, I think where the shoe fits, where it will, it's colonization and slavery. Quite often we devalued and demeaned a lot of um, slaves and we didn't consider their mental health at the time, obviously, because nobody cared. The, the black body was nothing more than a, a machine to push out work. So I think there's a lot of those ideas that happen. But also trauma. I think trauma changes the way we interact with the world. Now, there's a lot of people who say, just get over it. Not everyone's brain has the same strength. We also know from brain scans that trauma literally changes the way your brain interacts. There's lit, quite literal yeah, evidence it's true. that shows mm-hmm. that. So this is why I find it interesting. But I think most of it could lie at the hands of colonization and slavery and being moved into societies where we fought for equal rights, fought for consumer rights, and so much more. And still by now, there's still a lot of racism that's been deeply entrenched. But what's really funny is the black mental health was arguably probably a lot better when we were secluded in society. So the fight for civil rights with Martin Luther King wasn't a fight to be human. You know, it was a fight for consumer rights. And what white society realized was black people had their own little ethnic enclaves. They had their black banks. They had... Um, black schools, black churches, and their money was being kept in. So what they realized was by letting them consume wider society, they were disseminating all the money that was being held in these certain pockets and allowed them to be pushed back into wider society. So isn't that funny that black mental health was probably arguably better back then than what it is now, yet we people would argue we have more freedoms. Mm. Interesting. And even interesting, interesting. and even racism has a big effect on OCD because people hide their symptoms. So much so that in Af- in America, they're classed African American population is classed as the hidden population of OCD. I didn't know that. Hmm. Why is that? Well, I think, for example, if I came to tell you some of the thoughts that I had, right and you didn't understand mental health, you might be aghast at some of the things that go through my head. You perhaps maybe might try to understand it. Maybe you might report me. Who knows what it could be? But I think the taboo nature of the thoughts and the shame and the stigma of OCD is one thing. But then I think also being black and having this fear that you're going to be sectioned and you're already seen as a threat to society, but you see yourself as a threat, it internalizes certain attitudes, which I think, at times can prevent you from getting the help that you need. And that's, some, that, 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 that's one of my theories. And it's something that I've noticed from my lived experience of being a young black man, that I'm constantly seen as a threat in most places that I go. Mm. Yeah. There's been times like, gosh, it's like the first time like I've, I'm trying to think like how, how to speak after that, you know? Because it's, it's a lot to unpack, like so much to unpack, right? And it's a subject that, you know, even I'm trying to like understand more and more and I still won't get to grips with it, you know? And I think a lot of people won't get to grips with it. And I kind of want to like understand as well, like you, you, I think you've said in, in this sort of like the beginning of our conversation how speaking about your OCD has helped you, but I would love to know a bit more deeper, like how... How has it helped you? Because I know you speak about, you know, helping the voiceless in that sense. So like, yeah, how has it kind of 
helped you speak about it. So uh, I'll give you an example. When I went on Channel 4 and I spoke to ZZ Mills and Yinka about my OCD, and after so many people reached out to me, black, white, Asian, but one story sat with me in particular. A man reached out to me. He has a son and his son has OCD. And his son is probably, he said, his son is probably one of the nicest people in the world, but his OCD makes him feel like he's never going to get better. He's worried he's going to hurt people. He's worried about so many different things. And I said to him, I'll just come and see your son and we can have a conversation. And the man said, please, can you give me a couple of seconds? He just started crying down the phone and he had to cut the phone off and he called me after. And this is why I do what I do because so many people suffer in absolute torturous silence with their mental health because they are afraid to tell people their story. And why I want people to know what goes on is because you're not alone. OCD is actually a very common mental illness. Up to 1% to 2% of the population in the UK have it. And I'll give you an example. Donald Trump has OCD. Jessica Alba has OCD. Justin Timberlake, Kelly Rowland, Jay Cole... So many people have OCD. Even Professor Green has OCD. There's a lot of people that have it, but they just do not speak about it. Because OCD was presented um, first on Channel 4 in, when it was first aired in 2013 of obsessive compulsive um, cleaners. And it was aired in this way that was positive, almost as if to have a cleaning OCD is something to be desired. But only 26.5% of the population have the cleaning OCD. It's actually not that far. It's not, it's not a lot. But the type of OCD that I have and other people have, which is purely mental, internal, intrusive thoughts, it's not desirable to talk about it. There's nothing sexy. It's not quaint. It's not palatable past watershed hours, even past watershed or pre-watershed hours. It's just not something people want to talk about because there's an incentive to keep the dominant narrative a certain kind of way because also it makes money. There's um, on Amazon, there's things that say obsessively compulsive cleaning or obsessed with this or I'm so OCD. There's a whole economy that's built off false, gross miseducation of what OCD is. So why would, you know, and another example is why would you ban alcohol Although alcohol and cigarettes kill more people than cannabis combined. But we know cannabis is a healthier alternative. Doesn't that tell you something? And I think that's a great example to use of OCD. Yeah. Because I, I know, I mean, the whole kind of economy of it as well is, is such a fascinating idea. Like oftentimes I, when I've been following your content, I've now tried to stop myself from saying, oh, I've got, you know, because I, I hear those common people saying like, oh, I have OCD because I particularly like how a line is a certain place and all that crap where that's not OCD at all. It's yeah. actually, it kind of, um, what's the best way to describe it? it? It kind of downplays the extent of what OCD actually is. Right. And the way like it, it as you said, like, that example about Amazon trying to play into it, it's, it's crazy, you know? And I feel like, is that something like a myth? Um, because I feel like you, you talk about a lot about shattering archaic myths about OCD. Is that kind of like, one of those myths as well, like a lot of people, like, you know, a lot of people downplaying OCD, basically, like those kind of myths. I'd love to like, you know, understand a bit more about that. Yeah, most people do. And in many ways, look, I'm, I'm someone who's quite forgiven and I'm understanding of human nature that not, people don't need to know about OCD. They don't have to know about OCD, but I'll make people know about OCD as a bit of my mentality of the work that I do. I can have those conversations and I, I can give you just easy examples. When I went to a shop, 
and I was talking to a girl who was working there. She's a psychology student. And I said to her, oh, I'm thinking about becoming an OCD therapist. And she was like, oh, how come? I said, I've got OCD. And she said, I think she meant it in a kind, in a, in a, in a like in a jokey way. She said, oh, don't look over there. It's, it's not clean. You don't want to look over there. And I, I often say that I have two choices. I could choose to be angry at her, but what good does that do for conversation? And that goes against my morals and values where I believe in having a conversation that allows her to be positively educated rather than to be negatively educated because that's going to leave a long lasting impression. Or I've got the other, which is have a conversation with her and give it a chance to understand where she got her views from and explain to her what the reality is. And obviously I chose the latter. And at the end of it, she was a lot more receptive to my ideas. And she said, I'm going to go away and take a look at what OCD is. And even if she does or she doesn't, it's up to her. But there are a lot of myths, but a lot of it is not people's faults. There, there's charities out there that are doing work to really get people to understand what OCD is. And even with other common mental illnesses such as schizophrenia and so on, we have the wrong perception on it, but it's the media is a big agent in it. But also, we also play into the media and it's depiction of many different types of disorders, whether it's mental or whether it's physical. But I think we're living in a time now where we're changing the tide for people that have mental illnesses and they're being shown in a more of a realistic light, not in a glorified wrong edge. Yeah. Not in a glorified light as in not presenting OCD as something desirable. Like you don't want to have OCD. It's what I'm saying to people. You can have traits of it where, yeah, you might like something a certain kind of way, but having full blown OCD is something very, very different. Mm, no, totally. And I feel like it's all about kind of, because I feel like we all have a choice. As you said with that example, with like having that conversation with that lady in, in the shop, right? You could have, as soon as she said that, you could have turned around and be like, you don't know what it's like with having OCD. Da, da, da. However, you chose, chose and you used your choice of being like, you know what? This is an opportunity to have a conversation and to educate, right? Or it's also like a choice of the, the type of media we can consume, the type of media we actually want to consume, right? And how we depict you know, certain things as well. I think we all have a choice and I think it's about using our choices in the best way possible. And I think it's to, you know, make the world better in that sense. And I feel like with you, it's with your work, it seems like that's, you know, what you want to do really with your choice. Oh, absolutely. I, I looked at my life and as I said, when I was really down and upset, I looked at my skills and I realized there's actually a lot that I can offer to this world just because what's 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 happened to me and what I've been diagnosed with. There were times when I was like, oh, I'm going to have to live with this for the rest of my life. But practicing acceptance has been one of the key parts that I've had to do. But through the article writing, through public speaking, I'm, I'm aiming to do another TEDx talk on OCD because OCD is actually criminally underfunded. You know, it's only 89p spent on research per OCD patient with the NHS. But cancer that has £2.75, right? However, that's mental. when people argue about cancer, people say cancer kills people. OCD kills people too. But the thing is, because it's all mental, for example, I often say I'm sure that we've lost a lot of men to OCD. I'm sure there's a lot of men out there who've had certain thoughts and they've gone, I can't do this to the world. They probably feel like they're bad people because I know when I had certain thoughts until I understood it was OCD, I felt like I was a terrible person. But for example, cancer is a big business if we we're going to be very honest about certain things. Cancer makes money. Macmillan, the charity walks and so on. 
we know cancer makes a lot of um, business, but when it comes to things like OCD, because they're downplayed and devalued, there's not much research that's being spent on it. However, as I said to you, there was a 2006 study done by, um, I can't remember the university, but they showed the positive effects of psilocybin on OCD. So it's a promising time for people with OCD and other anxiety or compulsive based disorders. The world will change for them as well. So I try to use my platform of influence and public speaking to really get people to have conversations. But I'm also in a very privileged position, to be very honest, Hamish. I have people that will listen to me. I've got social capital in the sense of people will want to hear what I'm saying. So I try to use it in the most responsible and proactive ways that I can. Mm, That's really interesting. When you say, why do people want to listen to you out of everyone else that people could listen to? Why you? I think people know that I hold no bars. I'm, I'm very, I'm a straight shooter. I'm very candid with my experience. Um, I don't try to lie. I don't dance unless I like the music and I don't scratch unless I have an itch. That's kind of my mentality. I think people know also as well that I'm truthfully quite authentic. And I think authenticity in this glamorized social media world is one thing that is lacking. I can always tell when a social media influencer is not who they are in real life. And I say this from personal experience. I can't say names because I don't want to be um, sued for libel or defamation. But Yeah, please don't. Yeah. Not my podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but there's people I've met in real life and they don't have the same energy or, uh, you know, a d- desire to be as humane as they are on social media as they are in real life. I think even a lot of people that I've spoken to on the internet, I, I ask to meet up with them if, you, if they have OCD because I want to give people my time because I think time is the best gift you can give people. And I think time obviously is a privilege and it's a commodity, but I'm hoping if the work that I'm doing, I can buy back some time in order to give back to the people that have given so much to me. But I would honestly say it's authenticity, 100% honesty, but people know that I truly do care. This is not something I want for the money. Yes, money's great. Don't get me wrong. But I do this because I genuinely want to help people. And Hamish, you know, I've been, I felt even very conflicted about asking for money for my articles or asking money for public speaking because it's so passionate to me. But then when I've had to speak to my agent and so on, they go, Sean, you need to be asking for money. Like, let's, let's be realistic. This is your life here. You, you know, you talk about your lived experience. This matters. People are willing to pay you. But I felt, I still even sometimes right now still feel really bad. So it's something I've had to wrestle with. That's really interesting because I also slightly feel like that as well. Like I'm not in that position yet, but more like, I don't know, like if someone wanted to pay me to write an article, pay me to appear on a podcast, I'd feel, it, it, it kind of feels like you, you don't deserve it. That's how I come across it. But maybe you have a different view on that sense. For me, it just feels a bit disingenuous at times if I'm being paid to write about my mental health. But I also understand that we're living in a world where everything is commodified. So what's the difference between me speaking about my mental health and someone writing about the clothes that they've worn? It's, it's the exact same. But also there's probably insidiously within me, there's a shame that comes with writing about my mental health as well. It, you know, I don't associate money with mental health. I associate money with other aspects of life. No, it does make sense a lot because it's like being paid to write about your own experience just for me doesn't, doesn't, doesn't sit right. But unfortunately, we live in a time where you have to pay the bills. You have to, I don't know, it's, it's, it is in a com- commodified world, it seems. But no. Would you ever would you ever get to a 
to a space where you feel comfortable in that sense, getting paid for what you do or not really? Do you not see see that self? I think I'm trying to change my mindset around it because I understand that it doesn't make me a bad person to be paid for writing about my mental health. But I do still wrestle with it. It's one of the things that I probably have quite a heavy guilty conscience about. But I just try to remind myself if people are offering, I don't need to assume guilt on their behalf or I don't need to assume worry because at the end of the day, I choose to be worried or I choose to feel guilty about it. I've had to really recognize my own behaviors and my own patterns and really reflect as to why I feel like that, but also change the way that I see things. As I said, I'm not a big fan of um, capitalism, but capitalism has given us this platform, Zencast, that we're using to record. Capitalism's given me the chance to be paid for writing about my experience. I'd be a fool to not be honest about it. So I just have to recognize the, the pros and the cons whilst also recognizing the pitfalls that can come at the same time with it. I think it's at least recognizing what so i think everything has a pro and a habit or a con to it you know but it's also recognizing when it completely takes over who you truly are absolutely a way to sort of like get away from it totally and i think those who are listening will probably want to know a bit more like kind of like what's the side to ocd that you kind of wish people knew about because i think oftentimes when i talk about my learning difficulty i often feel like people need to know that having auditory processing is, uh, processing disorder is way more than just me understanding speech it's it's there's like a more of like an iceberg to it so i'd love to know like what's the side of ocd that you wish sort of people knew about more about so i think one of the biggest sides that i wanted people to understand is the thoughts are ego dystonic so they're against your morals they're against your nature they um, are out of alignment with your character. Now, to most people, you might walk to a bridge and you might have a little intrusive thought where it might be a bit like, oh, um, what happens if I do this? What happens if I do that? For someone with OCD, with purely obsessional, depending if suicide OCD or harm OCD is their theme, they might get re- reoccurring thoughts over and over again that's racing like a conveyor belt that keeps throwing the, an alarming at them that there's a threat, there's a threat. There's a deep-held anxiety that comes with it as well. Um, quite often, anxiety, it can be like anxiety on steroids is the best way for me to describe it. And most people don't seem to realize that. So that's something else I really want people to understand. And that living with OCD, it's actually, there's a very high comorbidity with things like depression and other mental illnesses as well that people don't realize. So I think when people do their research, they realize that it's not, just OCD quite typically it's as a result of other things and OCD is a maladaptive behavior in the brain that happens mm, that's completely it's like way more than just yeah it, it, it sort of affects your day-to-day it affects so many different things doesn't it absolutely yeah. it's got a deep profound effect on my life and in many ways I'm lucky that I'm able to speak about it but I know people who are suffering with it, with it even worse than I am and I think I'm very careful about the language I use I usually say not suffering. I use the word living because I think when you, in, when you say you're suffering or something, you promote this idea that it's a constant state of negativity and things are just happening to you. Whereas I think when you use the term living, you almost have this idea that it's a subtle, strange harmony alongside it. Yeah, you know what? I totally agree with that because it, I relate to it because I, I have a lot of people say to me, I remember one lecturer say to me like, oh, 
people who have um, APD, you know, they've suffered. And I'm like, no, they have not suffered. They have, as you said, they're living with it, mm. right? Because I think there's a complete, I've, I love that distinction between suffering and living with it because having, having a condition, it, it doesn't complete, I mean, as, as you said, because um, I feel like you know this way more than me, you know, sometimes OCD does, you know, put you in a situation that you're uncomfortable with, of course. But I also know, as you've been saying, you, you're lucky to actually speak about it, whereas other people haven't had that chance to speak about it. And I'm also in that same boat as well, where auto processing disorder, in, my, in that sense, like, I wish, you know, some people might not be able to speak about it as much, but I've been unable to fully, you know, condescend it in that sense. Yeah, no, so it's, it's a very good point. And I think you and I are in v- extremely privileged positions that most people are not lucky enough to be in. And I think we will do a disservice to our communities in which we represent. And probably in many ways, we are unelected representatives, but we need people to speak up. When I've been to OCD events, I was the only black guy. And what it made me realize was if I complain about this and I go, there's no one else that speaks up. I've got to be the change that I want to see. And for some people, they can't be what they don't see. Whereas for me, I'm the kind of individual, I'm like, let me set the trend that changes it. And I'm sure you're probably the same because before you um, spoke to me about your disorder, I've never heard of it in my life. I didn't hear anything about it. So it shows that you're doing the right work in your community. And I would like to believe that the work that I'm doing in my community is quite literally changing and saving lives. That's something that's really, really of unestimated importance to me because I don't do what I do for myself. I'm of service to people. And, you know, it's just, I, 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 can't, I can't begin to tell people just, I wake up some mornings and I'm like, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to help people. And that's kind of where I am. And I want to sit with that passion. And that's what's helped me to pursue my passion. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. I know it's, it's so true because I feel like oftentimes, you know, the fact that you're, I've got that purpose, you've got that passion to do what you want to do is brilliant, you know? And I, as, and speaking of passion, like what does passion mean to you? Passion is something that gets you up out of bed. Passion is something that you don't cry to give up. You cry to keep going because your passion allows you to keep going. Passion is something that is priceless. Passion is something that you can't put into words. It's just something you feel. It's something you know that will happen. And I think passion ultimately is something that never dies. It's something that always sits with you. It's almost this eternal fire that keeps burning. Yes, at times the fire might not burn as strong, but the fire is always burning. And with passion, you're able to keep lighting it over and over again. I'd say in many ways, when you've got your passion, the things around you add fuel and whatever it burns, it has embers and it keeps building and stoking this bigger fire within you. That's what I would say passion is. Passion is personal. Passion is, it's, it's, it's just, it's something you just, you know, deep down within it's intrinsic. It's within every part of you. That's what passion is. Totally. A hundred percent. Passion is, yeah, it's beautiful. You know, it's brilliant. I mean, I, I, it's a really great response, man, because I feel like, you know, it's, it's always, I'm always intrigued by a guest's answers to that question. It's always that question I love to ask people in the end. And I think that's a beautiful response, Sean. So no, again, this has been such a pleasure speaking to you. I feel like I've learned so much about your, you know, your condition, but also the work that you do for this conversation. It, I also just think, you know, thank you so much for opening up 
so much as well. Because I feel like, you know, as you said, the power of conversation is so important because you get to that deep rootedness of certain issues, people, the experiences way more than just surface level stuff, you know? So no, I'm, I'm, I'm internally grateful for you coming on to In Pursuit of Passion, Sean. So massive thank you. No, honestly, I'm, 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 I'm genuinely in awe because you've got a great platform. You're doing some fantastic things. And the least that I could do is come on and tell my story. And I hope in turn people hear it and they're reminded to never give up on their dreams. And as I said, do not cry to give up. Cry to keep going. If you're in pain, you might as well get a reward from it. That's something that always sits with me because... At the end of it, you're going to get through it. There's something that I always remind myself of, and it's called post-traumatic growth, where you go through your trauma, but your brain quite literally grows stronger as a, as a result of it. And I'm not saying trauma is to be desired, but remember, if you can at some point, remember you are going to learn something from what you're going through. So just remember that if you're going in, in pursuit of your passion, if you're up against hardship, if you're up against the wall, keep going. Do not give up. Love it. Love that. It's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant way to end the conversation, man. Sean, thank you so much. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of In Pursuit Passion, produced by Empire Media and hosted by myself, Hamish Hallett. What a great episode featuring Sean Flowers, all about his OCD advocacy. You can find out all of his links down below in the episode bio. And until the next episode of In Pursuit Passion, keep pursuing that passion and see you in the next one.